album number three, Songs for the Deaf, released in 2002. In the first part of this podcast, I said that this album is considered by many as the band's benchmark. From the Sperm and Egg album art, arguably the most fun incarnation of the Quatsa Q, to the music videos which were played endlessly on channels like Kerrang, both have really become integral parts of the band's image. But the album's magic is of course the music, and this was the soundtrack to the house parties of my teenage years. Empties, as we called them in Scotland, because they're empty of parents. Speakers blared, bodies danced, heads banged, people banged. So, how did this magical banging teenage party album come about? Well, off the back of Rated R, it was time for Queens of the Stone Age to hit the road once again. They stopped at Big Day Out in the UK, where Nick Oliveri got in trouble with the police. Then they went to Lollapalooza in Brazil, where Nick Oliveri got in trouble again with the police, this time for getting naked on stage. A semi-regular feature of performances, but after disrobing during this gig, he was dragged in front of a judge whose daughter was apparently at the show. He was made to formally apologise, citing ignorance of their laws around decency and blaming the hot weather. Homi found it funny, but his tolerance for Oliveri's unpredictability and behaviour had its limits, as we will soon see. Further touring, Homi got Mark Lanigan back on board. This time, as biographer Joe McIver puts it, he was a full-blown queen. This may be an intermediary step before the Songs for the Deaf lineup, but it's a bona fide lineup five, as far as I'm concerned. Then, after Quatsa toured with the Foo Fighters in late 2000, Homie made the shock announcement in 2001 that Grohl would be joining the band on their new album. Oh, what's that you say, grumpy Dave Grohl haters? I can't hear you over the sound of Dave Grohl's fucking amazing drumming. Grohl had wanted to play on Rated R, but it seemed that Homie had reservations about using Grohl's name to catapult the band. The success of the album Sans Grohl meant that it was all aboard the Dave Express for Songs for the Deaf, especially after it emerged that Troutman, uh, the drummer I met, I'm not, I don't know if I mentioned that, well, he had other commitments. Homie recalls, Troutman had all these other obligations when we started working on the band, so by day seven, it was time for him to go. I called up Dave and said, can you come right now? It was noon, and he said, I'll be there by 6.30, and by 8pm, we had tracked a few songs. Foo's fans were a little concerned that Grohl wouldn't return. Even their drummer, Taylor Hawkins, nice guy, met him too, suggested they were maybe questioning Dave's priorities. There were several other additional musicians on the album, but the most important were multi-instrumentalist Natasha Schneider, who is the radio DJ inviting you to crawl into her womb, and Alan Johannes. They, along with Joey Castillo and Troy Van Leeuwen, who toured with the album, are names we will be hearing again soon. I'm going to condense these complex studio and touring timelines, lump these guys, Dave Grohl and Mark Lanigan together, and proclaim lineup number six, regarded by many as their best lineup. Unlike the previous Quatsa albums, Songs for the Deaf was recorded at the site Conway and Barefoot Recording Studios in California. For production, Quatsa originally hired Eric Valentine when they recorded in November 2001. But they were unhappy with his job and in the spring they returned to old faithful Chris Goss. 
Homie remembers the recording process positively and describes tweaking the final product behind the desk as like a Rubik's Cube. You know when it's done. I bet that's the type of certainty many artists would kill for. The concept for the album was a drive through the desert. One explanation for the title Homie gave was that the sound engineer Hutch apparently used to work at dance parties for deaf people where the bass would be turned right up and the deaf dancers held balloons to help feel the vibrations. Sounds pretty cool to me. And now, are you sitting down? Because it's time for a proper little factoid. If you own the CD of this album, and if you've the right type of player, you can rewind it from the start to about minus 135 and let it play. From there you will discover the hidden track, track zero, the real song for the deaf, which starts with, huh, what, and continues with a low frequency bass build up. There you go. Well, with Grohl, Oliveri, Lanigan and Homi hyping up the record, fans were ready to get their hands on a copy of the album. It peaked at 17 on the Billboard 200 chart and eventually reached gold status in the US. The usual reviewers went mad for the album, and on Metacritic it was rated 89 out of 100, making it the third highest rated album of 2002. Tracks from Rated R may have seeped their way onto dance floors and out of radios, but it was songs for the deaf that exploded all over the masses. Album number 4 Lullabies to Paralyze, released in 2005. Now is when our desert cruising Chevrolet hits some bumps in the road. For a couple of reasons, this album is often, I think unfairly, maligned by fans. Granted, it isn't as consistent as its predecessor, but in amongst the mediocre tracks, there are a few that are just brilliant. The first blow to the album's fortunes came when Dave Grohl said goodbye and returned to Foo Fighters. Despite the fact there had never been any guarantee that he was there to stay, the band members seemed to take his decision to leave quite hard. This might have been partly because of their long-standing relationship with him, but mostly because of how much they respected him as a drummer and musician. Oliveri put it bluntly. I was pissed off for a minute. I was like, motherfucker, don't leave now. I kept telling myself, don't get spoiled, don't get too used to this guy playing the drums, but I couldn't help it. Homie expressed this in another way, by finally showing some cracks in his ever-changing lineup philosophy. He said, I'm starting to get sick of showing people songs. Dave's departure had sent Homie looking for a bit more permanence, and that's exactly what he found. After trying out Kelly Scott from Failure, Homie fell for ex-Danzig drummer Joey Castillo, after apparently hearing him play for only a fraction of a song. Castillo embarked with them on their biggest tour the next day, making this lineup number seven. It was a gamble that would pay off and see Castillo as the main Quatza drummer for the next decade. Homie also managed to get himself a rock and roll girlfriend in the form of the beautiful and talented Brody Dahl of the Distillers. Dahl was going through a messy divorce with her soon-to-be ex-husband Tim Armstrong from Rancid at the time. When Homie and Dahl appeared in a picture in Rolling Stone, Armstrong and his fans hit back. Homie recounted, I got all kinds of threats. They were saying, we're gonna kill you. And I'm saying, I'm six foot five and I have red hair and I'm not hiding. Go ahead. I didn't steal anybody's anything. I think if TMZ had existed back then, they would have been all over this story. 
As I've said before, Homi doesn't take kindly to perceived slights. The impression I get of him is that he has a very strong honour code, especially surrounding his friends, his fans, his band and his now ex-wife. He and Dal married in 2007 and separated in 2019. Sadly, TMZ were there to report on the breakup. The problem with these different allegiances is that conflicts can arise between them. Which brings us to the most significant and controversial lineup change, the firing of Oliveri. In 2004, Homi drove round to Oliveri's house and told him it was over. According to Homi, he looked him in the eye and told him he was fired, something which he always maintains was very hard to do as they had been friends since they were kids. Oliveri muddies the water slightly by saying that Homi had also told him queens were over too and the split seemed to be acrimonious for a short time. So why was Oliveri fired? Well, his role as the bad boy had apparently crossed the line. This isn't too surprising if you read into his history. Certainly his run-ins with the police would continue for years to come and there are various rumours floating around such as the suggestion Brody Dow wasn't his biggest fan. However, Joe McIver, the Queens of the Stone Age biographer, doesn't address the more unsavoury rumours when discussing the firing. Given that the biography includes an interview with Oliveri, perhaps we shouldn't be too surprised by that. Instead, McIver states that the final straw was an incident when Oliveri threw bottles of Corona beer, uh, full bottles of Corona beer, at one of their audiences. Homie claimed that the upheaval caused by the Oliveri firing was personal and wouldn't affect the band because he did 90% of the writing anyway. However, many fans see Lullabies to Paralyze as an inferior album and believe Oliveri's absence was a part of this. I disagree. In between touring as Queens of the Stone Age and new side project Eagles of Death Metal, the recording for Lullabies was done back at good old Sound City with producer Joe Baresi. Lineup number 8. The new album consisted of core members Homie, Joey Castillo, Troy Van Leeuwen and Lanigan. Even though after recording Lanigan leaves the band, he returns in later albums with writing and backing vocal credits. There's also a kind of second tier of regulars who record and tour but are labelled as guests in the credits like Alan Johannes, Dave Catching and Chris Goss. Then you have the final tier of new or fringe recruits. Some of them are predictable, some of them are surprises. Brody Dahl, Billy Gibbons, Shirley Manson, Jack Black, whose hand claps maybe you'll recognise on Burn the Witch, and Jesse Hughes, lead singer of Eagles of Death Metal. Met him too. Uh, apparently he provided flute on the album. Natasha Schneider doesn't contribute to the album, but she did join them for the tours. Tragically, Schneider died from cancer in 2008 and messages were posted by the band in remembrance. It's really a testament to her that despite the ever-evolving lineup, Natasha Schneider feels like an integral part of their story. Lullabies to Paralyze pushed the Queens of the Stone Age sound in terms of pop. You've got three singles, Little Sister, In My Head and Burn the Witch, but also in terms of their darker sounds, particularly in the second half of the album. Critics were generally very positive about the album, giving it only slightly lower marks than its predecessors. In the end, perhaps it was the fans who were the harsher. I'm looking at you, Oliveri fans.